Good evening, friends. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Mayan Gupta, and uh, I think we are going to talk about today uh, about uh, the geriatric pain management uh, minimally invasive approach uh, for those patients, like what are the options which exist for those patients. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, initially I'll talk to, uh, you know, briefly mention, you know, like what are the common problems which we see uh, in the geriatric patient population. Then we'll talk about what are the treatment options, minimally invasive options for those patients. And then hopefully, you know, like um, how do they come in the algorithm and the treatment part for those patients. And uh, in the end, we'll keep a few minutes uh, to kind of take some questions, uh, probably like 10 minutes if anybody has any questions. So I'll start with something basics, uh, you know, like how do we diagnose the problem, what are the treatment options, and, you know, where we are heading going forward uh, on those algorithms. So as the, you know, uh, I tell everybody, you know, like managing pain is a complex thing. You know, like it's not an easy uh, thing because you deal just not with pain, but you deal with psychosocial issues, many other things along with that. So it's itself challenging, and when we talk about the geriatric patient population, it becomes more challenging because uh, those patients are not uh, sometimes they don't have many options because they can't have uh, you know highly invasive procedures because of the age and comorbid conditions. The last thing we as a pain management providers wants to do is that you know you are in this patient population, your options are limited, and you have to suffer in pain. Uh, what has also changed over the time is, uh, you know, the medication management. Uh, the me when I was in fellowship 10 years ago, the medication management was very different than what we see now, uh, you know, in terms of short-acting opioids or long-acting and the CDC guidelines. So things have changed over the time. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad to, you know, kind of foresee that in the last five or seven years, there's a lot of minimally uh, invasive options which have come out for those patients and how we can help. So I'll start with, you know, Two ways, you know, like one is um, an easy way to uh, take care of the patients, and the second one is a tough way. So I'll start about the easy way first. So a patient comes uh, to the practice and says that, uh, you know, well, doctor, when I wake up in the morning, you know, I have a lot of uh, pain. And uh, as the day passes, after two or three hours, you know, in the afternoon, the pain goes away. So when I wake up, my stiff back is stiff, I have a lot of pain, and in three hours, it goes away. So the easy option would be then wake up in the afternoon and pain will be gone, right? <laughs> but that's not how, how easy it is, right? <laughs> so um, I think these are my financial disclosures up here. So as we talked about, you know, we'll identify the common problems in the patients. Uh, how do we diagnose it and uh, what are our treatment options exist for that? So... Um, the first thing, you know, we are talking about is the patients who have chronic low back pain uh, in the geriatric patient population. What are the common things which causes the back pain on this patient population? Anybody who has, uh, you know, the pain, either it is, you know, the muscles which are involved in it, it is the nerves, or it's a combination of both. And, um, um, and, um, and sometimes it's a psychogenic component which we cannot, uh, you know, ignore that. Now, the, any patients who have, you know, the back pain for a long time, in the treatment algorithms, the options which we, you know, we used to have back in the days was physical therapy, anti-inflammatory medications, neuropathic medications which we offer to those, a muscle relaxant. If those treatments don't work, then we offer like an epidural steroid injections. And as we know that, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes we have a limited success in those patients, helping those patients. And then the option was a surgical intervention, which becomes a challenge uh, in uh, dealing with uh, when we are talking about the geriatric patient population. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is uh, the lumbar spinal stenosis. 
Uh, that's a fairly prevalent, uh, you know, problem which we see in the geriatric patient population. Uh, the common symptom those patients present when they come to our clinic is, uh, the patient says that, you know, when I'm sitting on the chair, I don't have that much pain. As soon as I start walking or standing, I hurt in my back, and then I sit down and the pain gets better. Uh, I'm able to walk about for, say, like two or three blocks or stand for five minutes, then I hurt in my back and the buttock, I sit down, I get better. The second symptoms they say, when I go to grocery shopping, I take a cart and lean forward, my pain gets uh, you know, better. Uh, we get an MRI for those patients, and what it shows is that they have uh, you know, moderate or severe central stenosis or a neuroforamen stenosis. Uh, so one of the options was uh, to, for those patients, if they have failed physical therapy, the medication management, was to do an epidural steroid injection. Now, what we found recently in a couple of studies which came out, the data is pretty limited for the role of epidural steroid injection uh, with the patients who are just suffering as a lumbar spine stenosis as the main uh, presenting complaint. Uh, typically, uh, on most cases, uh, you know, the epidural steroid injection does not provide long-lasting relief for those patients. Uh, the other option is we send the patients to the neurosurgeon, and uh, you know, they go for an open laminectomy or a decompressive surgery. But what that entails is a longer hospital stay, the comorbid conditions, and a perioperative mortality around it. So with that in mind, there is two uh, minimally invasive procedures which came out in the last couple of years, and there is a clinical data showing the efficacy of both the procedures. Uh, one was an indirect lumbar decompression, and the second was uh, you know, the direct lumbar decompression. So this is the indirect lumbar decompression. So basically what we do is on those patients, uh, you know, it's an outpatient procedure which takes about probably like 30 minutes to do it. Um, and it's done on most part in sedation, so patients are not subjected even to general anesthesia. Uh, what we do is uh, we make like a small, like say this patient, for example, has a L3, L4 spinal stenosis. So what we do is we make about a one centimeter size incision or one and a half centimeter size incision between the interspinous process. And through that incision, we introduce uh, like a trocar. And through that trocar, it is, uh, you know, this is an engaging device, what you see up here, and it's like a screwdriver. You just engage it in the uh, uh, interspinous process and kind of dislodge it. And what it does is, if you can see it, it creates a distraction between the interspinous process uh, and where the neural foramen is, where the nerve root comes out, because of the distraction, the space opens up uh, in those patients. So, you know, it uh, takes about like 30 minutes, and then you close it, and the patient goes... Um, home the same day, and they kind of resume their normal activities within a day or two. So there is not much downtime to it. This is an alternative approach uh, for the patients who are suffering from central and uroforamyl stenosis, and they're not you know, a candidate for any major surgery. They are not having any major neurological symptoms that you can place this uh, distraction device in those patients uh, uh, to help those patient, uh, patient population. The other option is, uh, as I was talking about, was uh, minimally invasive lumbar decompression. The other common cause, what we see uh, in this patient population is that, uh, this is a procedure which we are doing in a patient, is that uh, what happens is, uh, like we get an MRI of the patients, and it shows that they have central stenosis, and one of the common causes for the central stenosis is uh, the ligamentum flavum hypertrophy. So those patients, their ligament, uh, you know, flavum becomes less calcified, uh, you know, more calcified and less elastic over the time. And what that does, it kind of compresses uh, centrally on the neural stru structures and causes the discomfort for the patient. 
So what we do is, in those patients is, again, we make like a small centimeter size um, uh, incision for those patients. And what we see is that, uh, you know, we go in the epidural space and then we give a contrast. And like what you can see in this picture, when you give a contrast, like it's, going, it's flowing pretty decent up here. But when you go up here, there is a stricture or there is a stenosis, it's not flowing as evenly. Then you come down, it's like a, a you know, very thin streak and it's not flowing in. So what you do is, you make again like a small centimeter size incision, um, and then you introduce uh, this trocar like up here. And uh, through that trocar, there is, a, there is another device, which is a tissue sculpture, you pl uh, place it through that, and then you go to the ligamentum fl uh, flavum and kind of scrape it off or decompress it. And again, this procedure doesn't take too long, probably like 30 minutes. It's more, on most part, it's done under sedation, and the patients, uh, there is not much recovery time, and uh, uh, they kind of resume their normal activities in the next couple of days, uh, those patients. And what it does is that uh, if you can see in this picture, like there is a stenosis like up here, up here, the contrast flow is not flowing so well in the epidural space. Now, once you decompress it, this is how it looks like the contrast, like it goes up and down, and you're able to decompress or achieve the same thing in a minimally invasive fashion rather than trying to subject the patients for open laminectomy or decompression procedure, like what you see in this patient. And the recovery is as fast, like there is no downtime, and the patient kind of report the pain relief like within next week. So it's not like they have to wait for a month or two months or something like that to help those patients. Uh, the other common, uh, you know, the problem which we see uh, the patients uh, who are 65 plus on most part is um, they don't have any radicular pain, like they don't have any pain going down the arm or leg or anything like that. Their main concerns they come to the clinic is that, you know, uh, doctor, when I drive my car, my neck hurts. When I turn my neck side to side, it causes pain. I can't turn my neck. The second complaint they say is that, you know, when we wake up in the morning, we feel stiffness or we turn side to side, that causes the back pain. I don't have any sciatica symptoms, but it's just my neck or my back which hurts all the time. Uh, we get an MRI of the patient. I mean, it might show some bulging disc and stuff like that, but majority of the MRI will show like a facet hypertrophy in those patients. So uh, in those uh, patients, of course, you know, as I said, that we always comes to the basic. The first thing is we offer them physical therapy, anti-inflammatory medication, muscle relaxant. But say if it is not working, then what do we do? Uh, typically, if the patients have the pain, which we call as an arthritis in the neck or the low back, and if that's what the source of the pain is, again, the epidural steroid injection has uh, a very limited efficacy or a short-term relief for those patients who have just an axial pain and it's not shooting down in the arm or the lower, uh, or the lower extremity, does not have any component like uh, radicular symptoms. Um, so what do we do? So basically what happens is that this is an example like... Uh, this is where the joint is. So what happens is when the patient turns or twists, they have this pain because this joint has a lot of inflammation and osteophyte, and that is causing the pain and the stiffness when they're sitting for long duration or turning side to side. Now, this small joint is supplied by a nerve called as a medial branch nerve, which kind of comes from here and gives a supply in that. So the hypothesis behind that is that, that for some reason, if we heat up this nerve or kind of desensitize this nerve, then, although the arthritis is there, but since there is no nerve supply in this joint, when the patient turns side to side, they will not have any pain. They are also not going to be, you know, this does not involve giving any steroids, so you're not worried about any complications with cortisone or anything like that. So, so the first thing is, uh, you know, we suspect that these patients have 
this pain which is coming from arthritis. We don't know for sure, right? It's a clinical diagnosis which we make based on history, based on their examination. So the first thing we do is something called as a diagnostic nerve block. What we do is the patient comes in the clinic and say, for example, if I'm suspecting that patient's uh, L4, L5, and L5, S1 facet joint is the problem which is causing it, the lower two joints in the back. So the patient comes in, they are, and they are on the table, they, and what, they, what we do is we put a local anesthetic right on the nerve. We'll put about like 0.5 mLs of marcaine or lidocaine based on the individual preference. And we tell the patient, don't take any pain medication when you come in. So they have some kind of a pain to compare it. What we want to see is, as soon as we put the local anesthetic, that pain which they are having like in the back should be gone. Or if somebody is complaining of neck pain that when I turn my neck side to side, when they turn the neck after you have put a local anesthetic, they shouldn't have that pain. So what that does, it kind of tells us and tells the patient that the diagnosis, what you're making is the right diagnosis, and that's what it is. Now, one thing, you know, sometimes it can happen that the patient comes to our clinic and they might just be having a good day or the pain is better. Or there is also like a placebo component that, you know, the patients think that, oh, something is happening to me, so I have to feel good about it. So sometimes you miss it. So to increase the accuracy of that, typically that's kind of a standard of care. These, most of the pain management doctors do that. They will do the nerve block like maybe like two weeks apart, the same thing with the local anesthetic. What they want to see is for first four hours or six hours, as long as the local anesthetic lasts, they want to see that the pain is gone. So if the patient comes back and you say, uh, you know, as for example, the patient has back pain and they come to your clinic and they say, my pain score on the scale of one to 10 is say, for example, six. You put a numbing medication, the local anesthetic, and then you ask them to keep a pain score for next six hours when they go home. So you give them a booklet and they write the pain score. If the pain uh, from like six has gone like for first six hours, like one or zero, or is completely gone or is about 80% better, what that, uh, what that tells us is that that's what the problem is and we do it twice to be 100% sure that this is what the problem is. And if we see the consistent results, then we have them come in our clinic and again, you see that, you know, we place like a small needle, which is, going, which is uh, going close to the nerve, and then you give a signals to the nerve. Typically, most of the doctors, they will uh, heat the nerve for 80 degrees for about 90 seconds. And what that does is once you desensitize the nerve, uh, the pain, the arthritis pain is gone, or they're about like 70 or 80% better. Now, what we have to keep in mind is that there are some patients who have overlapping symptoms as well, like... Um, you know, when you look at MRI, they might have some stenosis symptoms, they might have some arthritis symptoms, they might also have a bulging disc or some radicular symptoms. We as pain management physicians, we have to find out what is the culprit or what is causing the pain, and then we go after that, treating that. So um, again, that's the outpatient procedure, uh, you know, which is again done in sedation. In this procedure, there is no cut, there is no incision. And, uh, you know, and the patient feel, uh, starts feeling better fairly quickly. Uh, it take, when you heat up those nerves, it takes about two to three weeks when they actually see the full effect from that. And <clears throat> the clinical studies have shown that the pain, their pain is better for about somewhere between one to two years. Then these nerves have a tendency to regrow, and the pain can come back. And if they come back, then, you, you know, you repeat the same procedure, which is an outpatient. The good part about this procedure is, one, it is helping. Patients are not relying on, a, you know, anti-inflammatory medication every single day, which has their side effects. Does not involve any cortisone in this procedure, so you're not worried about, you know, if the patient is diabetic, that you're giving them high dose of steroids and things like that uh, for those patients. So this is how it looks like when you take a picture. You know, this is, uh, 
this is the needle placement uh, where we uh, you know put the medial branch block as we call as this is where the joint goes in the spine and this is how you place like the needles in the x-ray guidance this is another view to look at it how does it looks like in the lateral view that uh, if you can see this is the line where the joint is and you're sitting at the base of it in uh, both the pictures okay uh, the other thing what we see you know uh, in the patient population you know or that could happen with anybody is a herniated disc right um, the patient um, have the sciatica pain you know they have back pain shooting down the leg or they have a neck pain going down the arm uh, with tingling burning sensation and um, something happened they had a fall or they lifted weight and they have this back pain going down the leg or you know um, you know or they had this pain for a long time like on and off chronic pain uh, for those patients so once somebody has a herniated disc again you know as we said i you know we start everything what we do is something basic i mean many patients with a conservative management like physical therapy um, oral prednisone or you know gabapentin you know and all neuropathic medications they might get better over the time um, but there are some patients who will come back to your clinic in a couple of weeks and their pain is not better uh, one of the options is we can offer uh, you know epidural steroid injections to those patients uh, typically in acute herniated disc the epidural steroid injection works pretty well so there are clinical studies out showing that the patients who have chronic sciatica pain for a long time typically they don't fare out uh, you know as well as compared to the patients who have an acute herniated disc so sooner we do the injection for those patients who have somebody has a new herniated disc which is causing a sciatica pain the better their outcome is uh, for those patients now these days there are also new medications coming out the steroid was one thing but there are um, there is clinical trials going on trying different medications to instead of the steroid for uh, uh, you know to help those patients who have a sciatica the other thing is that some physicians use the prp stem cell and i'll talk about it in the end of the presentation uh, you know what we know so far about it uh, for the patients who have herniated disc um, now say the patient is not getting better uh, with a epidural steroid injection the patient is not getting better with conservative management the patient you get an mri the patient has a persistent herniated disc and what do we do for those patients so option was uh, to do the laminectomy for those patients or a microdiscectomy based on where the herniated disc is now again the challenge comes in the geriatric patient population is that sometimes they are not able to tolerate that high risk procedure or the patients don't want it like they will be like doctor i'm 85 years old i don't want any major surgery i don't want to be out for 3 weeks and they also you know and when the um, and sometimes the anesthesiologist has problem that the patient cannot be prone for so long because of copd and comorbid conditions and things like that so one of the things which we can offer them those patient is uh, the endoscopic discectomy so what you do is this is one of my case uh, which i was doing it you make a 1 cm size incision and through that you put like the strocar and through that you put a scope and you see the disc and take it out so again this could be done you know under a, you know under sedation um you give a lot of local anesthetic you the patient feels a poke when you initially uh, make a incision and that's pretty much it so what you do is this is my patient here uh, the patient has a right uh, l4 l5 level herniated disc so you place this trocar then you take a lateral view see how it's lying where the disc is the patient has a herniated disc and then what you do is uh, you put a scope through that and uh, you know and you see the you know this is the top which is a disc this is a part which is herniated up there uh, in the middle which is a white shape uh, up there and then through that 
uh, you play, you know, you uh, see that again in a different view. This is which is the patient has a herniated disc, which is kind of coming out uh, about half a centimeter size here. And then you have a tissue grabber, which you introduce through the scope, and you take uh, uh, that herniated disc out. So it's an outpatient procedure, which could, we can offer to those patients. Now, the downside with this procedure is, since it's a minimally invasive procedure, there is so much we can achieve. If the patient has, you know, um, somewhere like mild to moderate, uh, you know, herniated disc, then yeah, you can do that. If somebody has, you know, cauda equina syndrome or the patient has a central, lateral, and all those things, then with a small incident, you, you might not be able to achieve it. Things are changing over the time. You know, I had a talk with, you know, um, with the folks who are making these uh, devices. Like, they are, in the future, they are going to make uh, navigation-assisted devices, which will give us, like, a 3D view. So I think we'll, as the time will advance, we will be, you know, uh, we'll have more options to provide those uh, patients. But the reason I mentioned was that that is something we need to talk about these days, that this is an option, again, which is an outpatient procedure which can be offered to our patients who have a herniated disc, and we can help those patients by minimally invasive uh, options um, rather than offering them, um, you know, any highly invasive procedure for those patients. Uh, the other thing which we see commonly um, in the patients who are 65-plus or geriatric patient population is uh, uh, the compression fracture. Uh, the patients have uh, osteoporosis. They had a minor trauma or a fall, and, you know, they have the compression fracture. A lot has changed in the last 10 years about the compression fracture itself. So, you know, initially there were clinical studies which came out. They, saw, they thought that, you know, with the compression fracture, doing a kyphoplasty or all those inter intervention was a good thing and we should do it. Then there was an uh, article which was published in 2008 or 9 and said probably this is not a good option. We shouldn't be offering to those patients. Those patients you know, don't have good long-term belief, so, you know, it might not be a good option. Then the further clinical studies came out which shows the efficacy of it. So now with all those literature, if you summarize is where do we stand at this point? So where we stand at this point is that anybody who has a compression fracture, whether it's a thoracic compression fracture or it is a lumbar compression fracture, <coughs> if the patient um, has a history of severe osteoporosis and if that's what the cause is which is causing this fracture, the first thing is we try conservative management, which includes rest, back brace, and, you know, and see how the patient does. If the patient gets better in conservative management in two or three weeks and the pain is better, then that's the end of it. But if somebody has a persistent pain um, you know, uh, after three weeks or four weeks, then it's the time to offer those patients um, the kyphoplasty. Or, um, now... Uh, so at this point, uh, you know, the standard of care is, there is two things which I want to, I guess I will point out. One is kyphoplasty is not indicated for chronic compression fracture. If somebody has a fracture, say, for six months or a year, that fracture is whether it is healed in a deformed form or whatever it has happened has already happened. So there is no point in undoing what has already happened. So it is only indicated for an acute compression fracture, which is within three months of the onset, we get an MRI of the patient, which shows that there is some edema, there is uh, still an, uh, it's an acute phase, then only we sub, uh, you know, offer this procedure, and the patients who have failed conservative management. How do we do that is, uh, we make a small incision, again, you know, like uh, in the skin, about half a centimeter, then we uh, introduce the trocar through that, and we go through the pedicle, then we go in the middle of the vertebral body, and then um, through that, we introduce a balloon, and what it does is we inflate the balloon. What it does is 
kind of uh, increases, you know, restore, tries to restore the height of the vertebral body and creates a cavity. And in that, we put a cement in. What it does, it kind of helps in the pain control, and also it helps in kind of realignment or, you know, prevents, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, this osteoporotic uh, vertebral body to keep on compressing. Where, you know, in my practice for 10 years, where I have seen a difference is, you know, like, um, uh, and we don't have much clinical studies yet about it. What I've seen is the patients who have osteoporosis, they come to our clinic and we get an MRI and say it says 10% loss of vertebral height because of the compression fracture. We do nothing about it and we see that patient like six months later. Now this vertebral uh, body, you know, that has compressed because of the osteoporosis, like 40%. The patient has lost the height. What it does is once the patient lost the height, then their uh, natural spinal alignment has gone. That increases the risk of fracture in the vertebral body above and below. Those patients end up having kyphosis or other deformities over the time. And with the fact that this vertebral body keeps on collapsing over the time if it is not treated, sometimes that contributes to, you know, uh, spinal stenosis. Also, you know, for, you know, because it puts the pressure on the disc to like a herniated disc and things like that. So in my opinion, you know, I think uh, the, to restore the vertebral height early is a better option so that we, uh, we don't subject those patients to the loss of height and keep on collapsing this, uh, you know, the vertebral body in this area. So that's an option to offer the patients who have acute osteoporotic compression fracture, which is within three months. The MRI shows uh, that there is, uh, you know, there is an edema in the vertebral body. We can restore the vertebral body height and help those patients uh, in outpatient procedure, which is again done in sedation. There is no need uh, for those patients to give um, general anesthesia. I keep on saying uh, the sedation uh, because I think you know, that's more safe in this patient population. But there are exceptions which exist when the patient does not want sedation and you have to offer them a general anesthesia. But as a choice, most of the time, if I can, I tell the patients these are minimally invasive procedure and we do that under sedation. We don't offer the general anesthesia because of the risk associated with it. This is uh, another, you know, the minimally invasive uh, option, you know. Uh, back in the days, if the patient had a fall on their buttock or they were involved in a motor vehicle accident or they have an osteoporosis and um, they have the um, sacral ala fracture, which is up here, we get a CT scan or an MRI and shows that there is a fracture in there. We don't had any option. You know, we were just saying that, you know, apply the brace, rest, or medication. <clears throat> and those patients were in significant pain for a long time, like four to six weeks. Whenever they turn and twist, they have this pain. And what we have to understand is uh, when the patients are in allergy age population and we restrict their mobilization, that also contributes to many other comorbid problems like increases of DVT, uh, the pulmonary emboli, you know, if they're not moving, walking, pneumonia, and other things. So now what we can do is um, we can place, uh, you know, this cannula, if you can see that, and then we go through the sacrum in the x-ray guidance, and then we put a cement in there. What that does is the cement creates like an exothermic reaction. So as soon as you put the cement, it kind of desensitizes uh, the nerve endings around that, uh, you know, the bone which is causing this pain. So one stabilizes the fracture, and it, the pain relief is pretty instant. You know, the patient comes to your clinic with a sacral flexure, like literally in tears, can't walk or stand, and you will see that they will go out of your clinic actually smiling, and, the, uh, you know, and the relief is pretty profound with that, uh, with those patients uh, who have the sacral fracture, and we offer the sacroplasty to those patients. Um, 
the other thing, uh, you know, is uh, I guess you guys might have heard about it, the neuromodulation, the spinal cord stimulator. You know, the patients who have back surgery, um, for example, they have a herniated disc or for some reason they have a spinal fusion, L4, L5, and now they have a persistent back pain or the pain going down the leg. Um, what, what are our options? We can subject them to a repeat surgery. Uh, we can put them on medication, which have their own side effects. <clears throat> Or, you know, epidural injection, which again has a very limited efficacy uh, for those patients who have a, already a hardware, which is a fusion device or, a, a, you know, things like that. So if you go by the literature, at this point, the standard of care is if somebody had a back surgery and if that is, you know, the pain is not better and they are still hurting in the same dermatome, probably offering them the neuromodulation or a spinal cord stimulator to those patients. Only caveat to that is, which I caution everybody, you know, is that if you see your patient who's having any neurological sign, like they have progressive sensory or motor weakness, then yeah, I think they need to see the neurosurgeon again. If you have the patient who comes to your clinic and main presenting complaint is the pain, whether it's a back pain or the leg pain, there is no progressive neurological deterioration, I think that's the time when we need to talk about uh, offering the neuromodulation therapy to those patients. And... Uh, this therapy itself has advanced um, in last probably like 20 years over the time. Uh, back in the days, uh, you know, only option was that we had a very limited programming options for those patients. We used to call it as a conventional or the low frequency stimulation. So what was happening was that uh, we will place the electrical device in the spine and um, what that used to do was block this painful signals going to the brain and replace by like a tingling or, you know, paresthesia sensation um, or, uh, you know, in those patients. The problem with that was that that sensation, some of the patients did not like it over the time. So the thing which was helping initially over the time, that was, you know, patient was not getting used to that tingling sensation and they were not liking it. So the long-term efficacy was a challenge with the stimulator therapy. What has changed over the time is now we have developed over the time, you know, like high frequencies, low frequencies, multiple waveforms, and some of them does not involve any stimulation, that the success rate from this therapy has, uh, you know, improved, and the longevity of the success which we offer to those patients is, uh, has increased uh, over the time. And I think I have a lecture at about, I think, like 440, where we'll go in detail about the neuromodulation therapy itself. But this time, I just want to mention that, you know, that's an, op you know, treatment option. And uh, how does it work is that, you know, the good part is it does not involve any medication or any, you know, uh, how it works is that, you know, anybody who feels the pain is whenever there is an injury to the nerve or any peripheral nerve uh, injury, it carries through the dorsal root ganglion. Through that, it goes through the spinal cord, through the uh, hypothalamus, and then to the cortex. That's how we feel the pain. What it does, it at different levels, and again, we'll go in the next uh, lecture in detail about it, but it, blocks, it could uh, block the painful signals to go to the brain, either at the dorsal root ganglion, it can be blocked at the peripheral nerve, dorsal horn, or the anterolateral uh, pathway. It can be blocked at any place, and it's the electrical uh, signals which is generating and which is kind of blocking this uh, uh, signals going to the brain. So the patients do not uh, suffer from any uh, side effects from uh, you know, the medications per se. And the good part about the neuromodulation therapy is um, uh, that, you know, the patient comes to my clinic, for example, they say that, you know, I had two back surgeries or three back surgeries, I've tried epidurals, my, I have this back pain going down the leg. And I say, you know, we can offer you a stimulator therapy. And the first thing the patient will say, does it work? Is it going to help me? 
So what we do is, uh, it's a two-step process. We do the first thing called as a trial, and that's not me, I think that's the standard of care. <clears throat> so what we do is, the patient comes in our clinic, and we uh, do something called as a peripheral lead stimulator trial. So, uh, sorry, percutaneous lead trial. What we do is, patient is on the table, you know, we place the needle how we do in the epidural space, and uh, I think there is a slide up here, yeah. So we place the needle, like this is my patient, we place the needle in the epidural space, and through this needle, we thread this electrical wire which goes in the spine, okay? And then we take this needle out and we tape this wire outside. So there is no cut, there is no surgery, nothing is going on. And this wire, you know, this, this is taped outside. The patient goes home, do their normal activities for one week, like walking, standing, whatever they're doing it. And then they come back. The worst thing which can happen is they come back and they say, you know, it didn't work, I was still in pain. So we pull this wire out, and that's it. So there was no harm done, there was no cut, there was no surgery, nothing happened. If the patient comes back, and the patient tells the doctor, like I was like 80 or 90% better, it really worked pretty well for me. Then only we go to a, uh, you know, the step two. Um, this is another example of my patient. You know, like this was my patient uh, had, uh, I think like five or six neck surgeries, and if you can see, uh, the fusion was on anterior approach, the posterior approach, and uh, you know, and we placed the stimulator for this patient um, in 2017, and it's still doing pretty well a couple of years down the line uh, to block the painful signals. So what I was saying was that if the patient had um, uh, the stimulator trial and they had a good success, then only we schedule a separate uh, date. But we make a small incision about like four centimeters size and place the battery under the skin. So we only go to the step two. If in step one, when we do the trial, the patient comes to, uh, and tells us that, you know, this was working, it was helping. And when I say working or helping, we are not looking at, you know, like 30% or 40% relief. It should be pretty substantial, like 70 or 80% relief. If the patient is very convinced that this is something which is making a difference in their life, then only, you know, we want to offer this therapy. We don't want to offer the patient that therapy if their pain uh, control was like 30% better or a limited success because then we're setting up ourselves and the patient for a failure. So they got to try it for a week. If they like it, then only we go for an implant, uh, you know, for those patient population. This is another view to look at it, you know, to see how this is, uh, you know, we place a lead in the neck and we are going all the way to the, uh, the C2 dermatome in this patient uh, to see if this can help. This is another picture, you know, of uh, how we make a small incision and place a lead in there. Uh, neuro, you know, what are the indications for uh, the neuromodulation? The indications, you know, anybody who has a neuropathic pain, whether it is failed back surgery, whether it's a sciatica pain, or the patient has a chronic regional pain syndrome, we can offer the neuromodulation therapy to patient with either of those symptoms. Um, you know, and again, as I said, you know, we give them an option to try it, and if it works for them, they are convinced this is helping, then only we go to the step two, which is an um, implant for those patients. And this is how you know, the battery looks like, and if you can see in the picture here, this is you know, the wire which goes in the spine, and uh, this is where the battery is going in. Now, I, I must mention here that, you know, there is two ways to place the stimulator device, okay? So the one is a traditional way, how the neurosurgeons used to do that, and they still do that. What they used to do was they will take this lamina out, like this vertebral body and this, and they call something called as a pedal lead. They will take this lamina out, and then they will physically place this pedal lead up here. And that was kind of the, you know, majority of the, uh, you know, how we were practicing over the, for the longest time. 
Now, when we as international pain management physician came in, we started doing this. The world placed like a small needle, and through that, we thread the electrical wire. So we don't have to take this lamina out, or we don't have to take this vertebral body out. So it became a minimally invasive procedure. When it started, initially, there was a drawback with that because we were placing this needle, and we did not knew how to place this needle and you know, how to anchor that in the fascia, that there was a high rate of you know, the lead migration. The leads were moving, and the patients were coming like two months, six months later. So you know, we said, you know, since there is a high, lead of, you know, high rate of lead migration, uh, we, we don't want to offer this therapy, and we should have the pedal lead implant. So the patients were saying that, you know, I'm anyways going for a surgery. Why do I go for a stimulator? Because I was getting a laminectomy. Over the years, what has happened is the technique, how we place it, we have learned from our mistakes as a pain management physicians, has improved. The devices, anchoring device has improved. And uh, with that in mind, with the technique which has improved the anchoring device, the, the lead migration rate has gone, you know, has gone significantly down over the time. So actually, I'm collecting my own clinical data, like how my patients are doing for last five years in my practice and how many lead migrations we have. And does it make uh, you know, uh, sense to the patient and offer in a different, like a treatment algorithm now, uh, the percutaneous lead placement versus the paddle lead? And uh, you know, what we are finding is the rate of lead migration is less than 0.05% in those patients. So with that in mind, I think the things which could be done minimally invasive way would be better off than trying to subject those patients for paddle lead placement and taking, uh, doing the laminectomy and doing more invasive procedure uh, offering those patients. Uh, now, the other thing, uh, the stem cell therapy. I mean, that is, uh, you know, uh, it's fairly new. You know, we don't know much about it. There are folks, who, you know, who have talked about it, you know, that, you know, it has good success rate. Some have said it's not as great. I don't think so. We, as a pain management physician, still has a pretty good consensus on who are our right patients. Like, I do the stem cells in my practice as well. You know, sometimes I, I tell the patients, you know, it might not help because you have a herniated disc, it's a physical obstruction, and they, you do a stem cell, they come back and they say the pain is getting better and, and the vice versa. So I do not think so that we still have like a very consensus guideline or a, a you know, um, or a very uh, significant rationale. But what I would say is that if the patient has tried everything on the planet, like injections, epidurals, and nothing is working, I think it's worth an option to give uh, offer to those patients. Um, so the other thing which I, I guess I didn't mention was uh, the intrathecal pump. Uh, so the intrathecal pump, when I was in fellowship 10 years ago, the patients who have multiple back surgeries or they have a chronic pain for a long time, so the algorithm was if the patient is taking morphine and they are taking over the time more than 200 milligrams of morphine, then, you know, and they still have uncontrolled pain, then uh, offer them an intrathecal pump. It has changed over the time. What we have learned um, over the years is that probably for chronic pain, the intrathecal pump is not as effective as we thought. So it is reserved for the patients who have uh, the cancer pain with uh, you know, the limited lifespan. And you know, so those are the patients uh, you know, we offer uh, the intrathecal pump, or the patients who have spasticity from quadriplegia and things like that. So that, that's why I did not include that in my presentation, because intrathecal pump has kind of gone out of, you know, over the time as we have learned, you know, in terms of preferences and, you know, and what we have learned. So at, at this point, you know, if you look at the evidence-based medicine, uh, intrathecal pump, most of the pain management doctors are using for cancer pain or the patients who are in palliative, you know, uh, care and, you know, they're, uh, they have a limited lifespan. 
for chronic pain, typically we are not using. Of course, exceptions do exist. You might find one patient out of the blue, like who has severe rheumatoid arthritis and all those things have tried. They can tolerate the medications, the options are limited. Yeah, you can do it. But it is not as favorable as it was like 10 years ago, just because we have learned over the time that does not have that great of efficacy long term uh, in terms of uh, intrathecal pump uh, for those patients. With that in mind, I think. Uh, I want to keep some time for questions so that uh, I can answer that. Otherwise, I'll keep on going. Yes. So the spinal cord stem, does the preference for maxial particular Probably not. You know, um, so most of the time, as a physician, if you're suspecting the patient has a neuropathic pain and it's not a mechanical pain, then offering the stimulator would be a good option. Now, sometimes as a pain management doctor, we or anybody as a physician, we are not 100% sure how much is the, like somebody has, say, for example, L4 to L5 fusion. We don't know how much is the hardware which is causing the pain or mechanical pain is, how much is the radicular component, and sometimes it's a mix. So that's why we do the trials, because I think it's a good option, because we are giving an opportunity for the patient to try themselves, whether it is helping or not. But anytime if there's a neuropathic pain component which is involved, those patients fairly do well with the stimulator therapy. Yes, sir. So in cervical, yeah, so in cervical, you can place the, ladder, uh, the battery, you can place in the upper thoracic area. You can also place in the low back. You just have to tunnel all the way from the neck to the, uh, in the low back. What I do in my practice is I put it in the, between the iliac crest and the 12th rib in the left low flank. That's what most of the time I do it. Yes. Yes, sir. So far, that's what, I mean, they have done a, uh, we have a five-year clinical study, uh, you know, which came out, and that's what they found comparing uh, the open decompressive laminectomy, you know. Of course, there are some uh, rates of, like, migrations, revisions, but yes. So there is a clinical study out there showing, comparing head-to-head the laminectomy versus indirect decompression and showing a better outcome with this. Yes. Any other questions? Yes, sir. That, that is absolutely true. So that's what I was just saying, that stem cell therapy conceptually makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, but how does it work and which one it is helping? I don't think so we have much answers to it because, like, I give you an example in my practice. I had, you know, a patient, uh, you know, like young athlete who has a shoulder discomfort and, you know, bursitis, and I thought he will do well because that's what everybody's, you know, I did a stem cell, did nothing for that patient. I had like a, in my practice, like a 92-year-old female. She had a frozen shoulder for the longest time, and she said she wants a stem cell. Her daughter was with her, and I said it's not going to work because you have this frozen shoulder for the last 10, 15 years, right? Uh, but daughter was insisting that they still want to it. I said insurance doesn't cover it. You have to pay out of pocket, but they still wanted it. So, okay, we'll do it. So we did the stem cell injection for them with their, you know, and the, I saw the patient four weeks later, and she was literally like this when I walked in the clinic. And I'm like, you know, how did it work? I have no clue. So we, I think we have more questions than answers about it at this point. 
But I think if, you know, if there's nothing else to offer, is it worth a shot? Yeah. I think we'll learn more about it over the years, about the stem cell. And Yes. Yes, uh, so that was, you know, that med medication came out, but again, for, uh, you know, what we know or what we are doing right now in most of the physicians, I mean, it's a good option. It is an option which is an alternate to an opioid, uh, but uh, for chronic pain, uh, physicians are most part, they are not using it just because of lack of lack, uh, efficacy in chronic pain for long term. Yes. Post-operative addition, no, I'm not using any, uh, there are physicians who have done that. In my practice, I'm not using that. Yes, sir. So the recommendation is because of multiple reasons. Like there were multiple studies that came out in the last four or five years. Uh, and what they found was that after one or two years, for a multitude of the reasons, patients are losing their efficacy. Some of them are getting resistant to the medication. Some are having side effects. You know, so we didn't find the long-term relief for those patients. That's the whole reason it has come out of the algorithm. Any other questions? Okay, I, think, I guess with that, we'll have some break here. Thank you, guys.